Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Yes, I am. I'm Lawrence Santoro. And tonight, tonight I want us all to have an evening in which we will forget about summer, about wretchedness, about heat, humidity, and concentrate on chills and, well, you'll see. So, quickly grab a snack, pour a drink, Settle down with a chum of choice and listen. Oh, one thing. I hope you've stopped by the Pledge Me site, the one that Dan Raybarts has set up to facilitate contributions to the production of the anthology Baby Teeth. If not, please amend your ways. It's for a good cause. I'll repost the link on this week's Tales to Terrify homepage. Also... There is no also. Not this week. This week, we are going to plunge right in and let Sylvia Schultz tweak your thoughts about the hereafter with another episode of her ghost-hunting series, Lights Out. So, if you've dipped your chips and found a friend to snuggle with, here we are, in candlelight and prepared to go. Lights Out. Everybody.
This is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out. I'd like to share a quick update with you all about the hauntings at the Pollock Hospital in Bartonville. This is such an active place, and it just keeps getting better every time I visit. I was there a few weeks ago to film a web TV show with Haunted History of the Paranormal. The personal experiences we had there that night were amazing. At one point, we were in the hallway near the men's death ward doing some recording for the show. The temperature in the hallway plummeted as we recorded. Soon after that, every one of us smelled the sweet scent of pine or balsam in the hallway, a faint vestige of the herbal treatments that may have soothed patients here. And just last Friday night, I was again at the Pollock, tagging along on a public tour. The volunteers at the building are constantly refining their presentation of the history here. You've got actors and actresses portraying patients and nurses, even grave diggers, in their efforts to teach people the history of the Peoria State Hospital. Chris Morris, as head nurse, stands at the hallway near the men's death ward. This is the delousing exit through which patients were admitted. In this tiny admitting room, they were asked to take off their clothes, which were then taken out back and burned. Tuberculosis germs are carried on clothing. Then the patient would be escorted across the hallway to the shower room. Women would have their long hair shorn, again to cut down on the places for the TB germs to hide. Then the patient was escorted back across the hallway to the exam room adjacent to the delousing exit. The actress portraying a patient that night was a young girl with long hair and two luxurious ponytails. She clutched a doll and coughed sporadically. As Chris spoke, a nurse came up and escorted the patient across the hall. Several minutes later, as Chris continued, the nurse and patient emerged from the shower room. The patient's hair was now close-cropped on her bowed head. The nurse led the young girl to the exam room, where she sat dejectedly on an exam table, giving a few tubercular breaths. <clears throat> Now here's where the story gets weird. As Chris continued her presentation, all of us, the group in the hallway, the two actresses in the exam room, heard several deep, loud, tortured breaths. <coughs> Those of us in the hallway assumed it was the consumptive actress. The nurse and patient, though, thought it was the guy standing next to me in the hallway, breathing heavily as if to make fun of the actress's performance. Comparing notes later, though, we all found out that there was no one who had taken those deep tubercular breaths. At least, no one that we could see. Shall we go lights out? On a bright, sunny Saturday in June, I rode the motorcycle over to Galesburg for a book signing. I was looking forward to the trip. A visit to Galesburg always means a stop at the Cherry Street Bar. It's easy to find right in downtown Galesburg. It's got cold beer, great sandwiches, and fun entertainment. It's also got a ghost. I arrived at Stone Alley Books and Collectibles for the signing. The owner, Stone, is passionate about supporting local authors and made me feel most welcome. 
As I greeted bookstore patrons, a lady came up to me and introduced herself as Sally Wade, a fellow author. After the signing, she showed me to the beautiful old Center Congregational Church. As we sat in front of the altar, drinking in the peace of the 175 year old building and the jeweled tones of the sunlight coming in through the rose window, Sally shared an experience she'd had months before on a snowbound winter's day. Okay, so this, what is the name of the church? This is Central Congregation. Central Congregation Church, okay. Mm-hmm. Hall, but these windows used to open up, and seating was all around here. Wow! For a reception. And whoever comes just comes and sits sometimes here too. But that's so cozy. It's beautiful. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you know when those windows were put in? Oh, they look like the century. Yeah, they were. They just kind of look like that. Yeah. Yeah, right. That rose window is amazing. Yeah. At night, it looks like a jewel. Oh, they yeah. Have lights on, on it. But I know that this place is filled with, at times, with people to whom it matters. Yeah, my guess would be they're not so much haunting it as just hanging out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh that's what I think, too. Yeah. And this organ makes a sound like, it's the sister organ to the one at West Point, and it's the largest and oldest (laughs) in the whole town. Oh, wow. But it's pipes. Oh! oh We're behind the, uh, the altar, and Sally has just pushed back this <laughs> 30-foot-tall red curtain <laughs> to show me the pipes of the organ behind us. That's glorious. (laughs) (laughs) Because when someone really knows how to play her, you can sit out there and the the pews will vibrate a little bit, but you feel the vibration all through you. Oh, And you can feel the palpable presence of God in here. Oh, man. Wow. Well, since you have invited me in, thank Mm -hmm. you. Um, would you mind if we sat here for a while and no. just recorded? Sure. And you can show me how you were sitting that day. Okay. I'll try yes. not make too much noise. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. <laughs> um, it was a Friday in the earlier part of the spring when we were having a lot of snow. <laughs> And uh, 
I came here to do to be here for whoever we usually just have a small little group that comes in intermittently to experience prayer and uh, a meditative kind of prayer where we spend several minutes just calling in the presence of God and the peace of God and um, and then we begin to fill ourselves with that and send that through our own bodies and minds until we can begin to feel that power of God within us and invoke and invite God's purpose and God's plan not only for our own lives but for the lives of those whom we love and again there will be a little more silence to let those people rise in their minds and then out into the community for another few minutes and out into the country and out into the world and the day that I came and it was so snowy they hadn't opened the office and I realized nobody may come (laughs) and so I sat here for a little while and was going to leave when something inside me that I consider the voice of the Holy Spirit or my own soul I don't always distinguish between them but said no 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 don't go you don't have to go you know, you're not here alone. <laughs> and so I sat back down and I began to just look at the rose window and begin to do uh, the prayers uh, from inside me when I felt the spirits of people who had been here long ago and some that I knew when I lived here before. Uh, And I suddenly remembered where they sat and what came to me from somewhere within. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was a voice that said, you are not alone here, for heaven's sake. And we're always here with you when you come to do these prayers, whether other definable humans in your ordinary life are here or not. We're here, and we love it. We love this place, and we come to be here, too. Beautiful. And so I get a chance to share that story um, and feel their presence and their love. Some of them were not so easy to love during that earlier stage in my own spiritual growth. <laughs> <laughs> Now I see that there was a connection that was greater than our ego that has held us all together in this place. Even me, who's flounced out of here vowing never to return (laughs) on two separate occasions. It was here during a very difficult time in my own life um, that I heard a piece of scripture that sang into my soul <laughs> uh, that I've never forgotten and it was Romans 12 2 that says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that was speaking to me that I did not have to be conformed either to this world that I saw or thought I saw here that didn't feel very Christian to me at the time um but that I could 
continue being transformed by the renewal of my own mind. And that has followed me all these years, so I always think outside the box. <laughs> and I'm always open to that which we can't see always, but we can feel and know from a higher place within us. Mm-hmm. Well, I have had a wonderful time sitting here in the quiet, just experiencing your church. Thank you so much for letting me visit with you. Blessings on any of you who were here but too shy to speak up. I know you're a rather conservative group by nature. (laughs) But there's a great love that has bound us together and that keeps hold of me by an ankle. (laughs) Always here. (laughs) Even when I wandered away. And you've always welcomed me back and made a place for me and let me be me here. Even when I know I'm a little bit out of the box for some of you. We didn't capture any spirit voices on that visit, but the peace and serenity of the church was a welcome respite during a busy afternoon. It was nearing supper time by that point, so I was very glad to open the doors to the delectable grill smells of the Cherry Street Bar. Their menu tells a bit about the history of the building, including their ghost. I'm sitting at the Cherry Street Bar in Galesburg. I'm reading off the back of the menu here. It says, A History of Cherry Street. The building now housing Cherry Street Restaurant and Bar was built in the 1800s. Historical research has discovered that over the years it was occupied by other businesses, including Best Buy Furniture Store, Millie and Willie's Grocery Store, the Plain Dealer Printing Company, and Marty's Pizza Restaurant. In the mid-1980s, the Quad City brothers, Dan and Jerry Carmody, bought the property, which was being operated as a bar at that time, and turned it into Cherry Street Brewing Company. The Carmody's completely gutted former Marty's Pizza, including stripping the walls back to the original brick and adding a restored tin ceiling along with many other upgrades. Within days of opening, Cherry Street became one of the most popular places in West Central Illinois for food, drinks, and entertainment. Over time, the business was expanded several times. John and Tom Petmeyer owned and successfully operated the business for over a decade until the sell to Luella and Stan Devlin in 2010. With their purchase of Cherry Street, they hope to be as successful as the historical businesses have been and bring their customers the best food, drinks, and entertainment in Galesburg. It is suspected, due to all of the changes and renovations, it has disturbed the resident ghost of Cherry Street, who has been named Roxanne over the years. A check of city directories in the early 1900s confirms that the building listed several people living in upper-floor apartments. Both ghost and normal residents of Galesburg will remember or have heard about the Gaiety Vaudeville Theater, Coney Island, Knights of Columbus, Western Union Telegraph Office, Haynes Market, Hardy and Hardy Law Office, Brad's Pool Hall, the Downtown Lounge, Flesher Music, and the Galesburg Post doing business on Cherry Street. 
It is alleged that Roxanne was found dead in her bathtub. It is said that she and maybe some of her friends roamed the building at all hours, and some have heard and seen proof of it. A former employee stated that she had stacked all the chairs in the beer garden only to return and find three chairs placed back around a table. There have never been any reports of violence by our resident ghost, only fun little tricks on people, so we believe she's pleased with you being here. There might be times when you can feel her presence too, and if you get enough spirits in you, you might also believe in Roxanne. I spoke with Lou, one of the owners, about people's experiences in the bar. We had our, uh, our third investigation done. Yeah, cool. They said they don't want to do it again. <laughs> really? <laughs> Why not? Um, it got pretty, it got a little more, not really scared. Well, I guess they kind of got scared, but there was a lot more going on that time. Really? Who was it? She has a YouTube, uh, she put a video out on YouTube. Oh, cool. With uh, the sounds and stuff. So, uh, excellent. And I have it, I have the link posted on our uh, website. Oh, okay. So, it's pretty, I mean, it was, there was a lot of noises that they picked up and, and they were actually touched over here. Wow. In the, um, in the basement on the side there. Okay, cool. So, it kind of, she, I don't know, she just kind of got creeped out <laughs> that time. She was like, okay, yeah, yeah I'm done. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, all three times that we've had it investigated, they've done it on a Sunday. Okay. But, um, um, Illinois Ghost Seekers. Okay, I thought that's who it was. That's Illinois Ghost Seekers Society. Society. Yeah, I was talking with Crystal um, a while ago, and she mentioned that she had been here. So I was guessing that's who it was. Cool. Um, They were pretty sure that they actually got something on video, but they never did find it. They thought they the people that were up there thought they saw something in the sports bar. They were sitting on the steps going Uh up to the beer garden. And they thought they saw something, but when they went back and checked the videos, there wasn't anything there. Gotcha. That happened. (laughs) Yeah, there was quite a bit of, um, quite a bit of activity that last time. Neat. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I'm fine. We're going to not disturb them anymore. I think they're fine. We'll just leave things the way they are. (laughs) Cool. So what what experiences have people had? Um, Aside from investigations. uh, Well, um, the one bartender that I had hired upstairs in the sports bar, um, one evening he told me when he came down that um, he had, he said he was going through the place, you know, cleaning up, picking up things, and he knew for a fact where the remote was at for the TV, Mm -hmm. and he said he heard something fall, and it was quite a distance away, and he was the only one up there. So, and he's, he's he's a black kid, and he said... I know how this always works in the movies. The black guys always go first, you know. And he's like, so I don't like this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's, he was pretty creeped out that night. Uh-huh. Um, as far as, well, I can tell you, when I went through the basement one night, I was going to the office to pick up what I needed so we could get out of here. Uh-huh. And we were getting ready to leave. And uh, he, um, I, I was about halfway through the, um, the uh, basement area. And right where we have a lot of uh, deliveries, boxes of stuff, you know, there was a sound that was like, it sounded like somebody just slapped as hard as they could on the side of the box. Oh, wow. To the point where I turned around and I was like looking to see if anything was even moving. Nothing was moving. 
And I just said, okay, Roxy, I'm going to grab my stuff and I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was it. Uh-huh. But it was kind of weird because, I mean, it was, we were the only ones here again, you know, and, and uh, it was just real obvious that the sound, it, it just sounded, you know, if you just slap the side of an empty box, mm-hmm. that's what it sounded like. And it was just like it got slapped just as hard as it could be. Oh, my. And uh, it was almost like, you know, it's time for you to get out of here. It's time for you to leave. So, <laughs> so we, we're real agreeable with her. Mm-hmm. Him, it, whatever it is, <laughs> I don't know. Um, the investigations, they said that uh, they picked up more than one for sure. There's oh, wow. definitely more than one. And the name Roxy just comes from over a period of time. People just named the ghost, you know, so... Um, I've never really seen anything myself. Okay. Uh, well, there was one evening where uh, where one of my bartenders we it had a pretty busy night, and there's three of them. One, and she's just a she's a workaholic. She's always got to do something, so she's usually the one off going and cleaning and, and stuff. And she said she uh, came downstairs. She'd gone upstairs to clean the sports bar. Mm-hmm. And she had gone back up, and when she came down, she said, I don't know what happened or who did it, but all those chairs are straightened up, and I did not do it. And I'm like, okay, well, we've got cameras here, right? Oh, yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go and check things. Because I said, seriously, and she was like, I, did, I don't remember doing the chairs. She said, because I mentally made a note in my mind, you got to go straighten the chairs up. Mm-hmm. And we always... You see how they're sitting around the bar now? Yeah. yeah. And usually when, at the end of the night, we'll go and we'll turn them a certain way. So sure. they're kind of inviting somebody to sit down. Nice. And they do the same thing at first. Well, when I went down and checked the video, she was, it was, it was almost like she was possessed. And she was taking those chairs and just straightening them, putting the back solid up against the bar. And she did every single one of them the same way. She turned them, backs up against the bar, turned them, backs up again, and went down the line and did all. Oh. We had eight, seven or eight bar stools up there. And I'm, I came up and I said, Nancy, you did straighten those chairs up. She said, no, I didn't. I said, no, you did. Oh. <laughs> I said, I've got it on video. You did it. And it was, but it was just the way she did it. It wasn't like... It was almost like Jim's possessed. I, I swear to you, that was what it looked like to me. Oh, my. And, uh, and, but she didn't remember it. And I showed her the video, and she said, I sure don't remember doing that. And so, yeah, that was kind of creepy. Um, her and I both have heard noises when we're at the end of the shift, and we're just waiting to get out, you know, trying to finish up. Everything's quiet. Mm-hmm. And we've had TVs go off and on by themselves. Uh, the jukebox the volume all the way up and then all the way down and then it just shut down <laughs> and uh, there was like five people here that night sitting at the bar and we all just kind of looked at the jukebox like hmm guess she didn't like that song <laughs> um, but I mean little things like that you know that we've actually heard and one night there was an empty bottle sitting on the sink back behind the bar and nobody was behind the bar and it just tumbled Oh. And I was like, what was that? And I got up, and then the bottle was laying on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, Goodness. just things like that. But um, the investigations, they actually got a lot of audio. 
and they actually got it to. Um, we've got the. You've been in the restroom, so mm-hmm. they're like motion sensitive uh, paper towel dispensers. Yeah. And we actually have it on video, and that's what's on YouTube, where it spun out all by itself. Nobody was anywhere near it. Oh, that's the one she was telling me about. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 Cool. So it's uh, pretty... <laughs> I don't want to see anything. <laughs> but every time I go in one of these bathrooms and the towels is dispensed, I'm like, okay, they've already been here. But yeah, it, that's kind of pretty much it. I mean, okay. you know, you get... Sometimes people tell stories where they've been touched. You know, I've had one girl that said, I swear it felt like somebody just touched real light. Like, you know, just enough that you can say it was something. Like, kind of like when a fly gets on your hair or something. That's what they say it feels like. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Crystal was touched, and she said that was only the second time since she's been doing investigations that she's been touched. Well, wow. But... That's pretty much it. Okay, cool. Well, thank you very, very much. The presence of a ghost hasn't harmed anyone's appetite. You can even order a sandwich named the Roxanne. The menu describes it as thinly sliced turkey topped with Swiss cheese, sauerkraut, and our signature dressing served on grilled marble rye bread. For more information about the bar and its ghosts, please visit the website, cherrystreetbar.com. On the main page of the site is a YouTube link about the investigations that have happened there. Also visit illinoisghost.com and click on Investigations, then 2011 Cases Continued, then Cherry Street Bar, Case 1114. Cherry Street Bar is located at 57 South Cherry Street in Galesburg. Stone Alley Books and Collectibles is located very close by at 53 South Seminary Street, also in Galesburg. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode. Next time, I'll be bringing you chills around the campfire as we go Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia. Sylvia Schultz began her fascination with ghosts in childhood. As she says, she was an avid reader, raised on Grimm's fairy tales, the real ones, not today's sanitized tales for tots. Her ghost hunting began in 2009, while she was doing research for her nonfiction book, Ghosts of the Illinois River, from Quixote Press. A few years ago, she was inspired to collect and write about people's supernatural experiences at the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville, Illinois. This became her book, Fractured Spirits, Hauntings, at the Peoria State Hospital. Fractured Spirits brings together the history of the asylum as well as many of the ghost stories that have come about after the facility was abandoned. 
I recommend Fractured Spirits for a solid exploration of a very haunted place. Fiction Tonight, we have but one piece of fiction. It's by another old friend of Tales to Terrify, Gareth Stack. Gareth is Irish, and of course he's a writer and humorist. You can find his writings at garethstack.com. That'll be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. And his latest comedy project, the weekly sketch comedy podcast, Dead Medium, is on iTunes or at deadmedium.ladyboyjesus, all one word, dot com. Again, that'll be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. A word of warning about tonight's story. If you are of a squeamish nature about matters sexual or matters religious, or matters both sexual and religious, well, mayhap you'll give this story a pass. Well, if you've made your decision, I don't want to keep you waiting. So, here is Gareth Stack's Herbert Bowman lay absolutely still. Herbert Bowman lay absolutely still, focusing all his earthly attentions on one recalcitrant big toe, his left. It was, by and large, an unassuming digit, roughly normal in size and shape, and carpeted with a tangle of light brown hairs ending at the joint, broadly in keeping with what could be expected from an Anglo-Saxon toe, an upper-lower-middle-middle-class toe, of its approximate age and gender. Nevertheless, it was a source of endless trouble. Testily, he gave it a thorough wiggle, then commanded stillness, moving on to the littler, gentler toes to its left. Sweet, short, rotund country toes, forever obedient, forever disapproving of the misbehavior of their uncouth and barbarous neighbor to the west. He wiggled each in turn. He cracked the joints where necessary, easing any stiffness and discomfort. Feet done, he moved to his fleshy, leaden legs. Relaxing them was never a problem. They were difficult to move at the best of times. He tensed and relaxed each in turn, focusing on the wet, cooling skin, the myriad sensations of each wee, kinked hair. Herbert gasped, inhaling as much as was possible in a momentary gulp, and held the air for three soft beats, expelling it to imbibe a fresh lungful. When he'd taken and exhaled the last of six quick, deep breaths, he began to fill with a sparkling lightness. His head turned soft and focused, his limbs supple and tingling. It was a procedure he'd perfected over the years, shortened and customized from its original Baroque form. And here was the trick. With long practice, he'd become able to hold on to the infusion of energy— keeping head and chest filled as he sharply slowed the beating of his heart, pooling the pale, warm luminescence, spreading it from muddy head to churlish toe, clenching, then relaxing something only nominally physical, something taller and softer and cooler than his fat, pale, breathing corpse. 
With a guttural wretch he tore through his ashen vessel and drifted, drifted up and out through the drawn curtains and into the autumn night, cold as sin, intangible as frosted breath. Herbert opened his eyes and ran a sleep-dulled tongue over sticky teeth. Scrunching his heavy-lidded eyes and curling a lip in self-loathing, he struggled up and out into the chilled and lashing morning. When he reached the office, Megan was already on the phone, her nasal north-side brogue stinging his hangover. "'Like I give a fuck what he thinks. Cheap skate fucking der bird wants the dessert before the dinner.' Oh, all right, Herb, your paper's on the desk. No calls yet. And ye should have seen his ex, filthy leather-faced Minga. Herbert shut the thick oak door of his inner office, cutting off the stream of inane profanity, and reminding himself why he kept her around. Megan was the most effective means he'd found of keeping prospective customers from his door. For the first couple of years after Surly Bonds had opened, its competitors had been worried. He'd had a string of visitors, rat-faced little fellows with errand sweaters and cheap shoes at first, then bald bull-neck types with shamrock tattoos crisscrossing their ropey biceps. None of them could understand how he managed to be so successful, how one man alone, who rarely seemed to leave his unkempt and unimposing office, could staff a thriving detective agency. Herbert eschewed the traditional cash cows of his industry, the wayward husbands, the scheming accountants, the less the gentle protection of arcades and corner shops. He focused exclusively on the one area in which he excelled. Herbert Bowman found things. He found missing jewels and leather-bound diaries, stolen cats and runaway dogs. He found long-lost brothers and sisters and mothers, separated by industrial schools and Magdalen laundries. He found squirreled wills and unclean hidden deeds. He found burnt-out cars and working hi-fis. He found stray kids and child abusers in hiding. Once in a while, when a red-lidded woman, grown old much too young, or a hard-featured man with slumped eyes and lost shoulders stared at his dirty carpet and begged him, against his better judgment, he found bones. When he found himself in hospital with a swollen groin and three broken fingers, he knew none of them were worth it, and made up his mind to take only as much work as would keep body and soul from cleaving apart in wretched indignity. Little Mickey's football is cancelled, and for what, feckin' young scientist? Herbert's ghost, shorn of its itchy gray cloak of flesh, cut her off, passing through the door like hot tea through tissue, and rolled onto Talbot Street. Above his absent head, a dart trundled and shook the aged pillars of the overpass, its undergreased wheels screaming in an agony of deceleration. Herbert ignored the constricted crawl-tube of the footpath and sped through steel-caged roadworks. Through the fence the crowds seemed momentarily, to his streaming dream eyes stung by the turpentine stink of hot steaming tarmac, like wild pigs trapped for slaughter. It was always thus. You dragged the prison of your senses with you on your journey, but unleashed, too. Freed from the constraints of certain perception, the street had at once a halitotic physicality, 
and the mesmer of a hundred million underlying paradigms, each as real as the dirt and the dust and the desperate characters with snooker cues and sharpened shadows in the doorway of McSwiggin's arcade, each as ephemeral. Herbert sped on, past the old borons of O'Shea's hotel, past the Irish pits of Kylie Cliché, past the decrepit shopping mall with its rain-stained concrete arches, like a thousand local shitholes in Droida or Navan or Dulic, its pink neon a streak of wet vagina on a celluloid blur. He thrilled wicked in the arctic halogen light of a Dublin October, twisting past the smirking half-wit perfume counter girls, and yank tourists with half-moon shades and patent-leather jackets, and big, sallow, patent-leather wives. He danced past a legless Eastern European, cursed with the stigma of a little Arab blood, hawking big issues from his health-card wheelchair. He passed the thriller set alley, with its hand-painted big shooting sign stuck up and faded on once whitewashed brick, a dirty home to two clean cars of tenement rent lords. He sang a dirge, a ballad to the cruel, seductive old, old streets, sang it to the faces of country girls in their shiny Arnott's outfits, off home from college for the weekend to show a proud daddy how big they'd grown, and hint slyly to an envious mammy over the dishes of contraceptives and Bacardi breezers. He loved this smirking city, when you saw it all, outside it all, in all its willful ignorance and self-deceit. Loved the amoral beauty and the shitty magic of the streets. Loved even the hollow-eyed skangers, squabbling wretchedly, puffing from high-tar fags, swung in bright dangerous circles in their palm-up junky grips, while pug-faced doomed babies wailed in their prams. Loved the bent and tarnished folly of the spike, Loved the carcass of the old Odeon, where his first date had puked a thirty-quid spaghetti bolognese into his lap, while Freddy Krueger scrapes down a cardboard alley somewhere in Hollywood. Loved the lie and lay of the city. Herbert kneaded his temples with hard, sweaty knuckles, glancing down at the tangle of hard black hairs. The scarecrow remained silent an awkward conjunction of arms and elbows, too big for the cosy office. "'It's not about how much you can pay, father. Frankly, I don't need your money, and—the words were bitter in his mouth—I have my issues with the church.' The scarecrow began to reply, but Herbert cut him off. "'All that aside, I'm not certain how you came across my talents, but it doesn't matter. I don't deal in the occult.' "'My son,' the scarecrow began, reaching across the desk as if kindly imparting marital advice, "'you possess a gift. We've all been given our talents, our own means of glorifying the Father, some more unique than others. Yours may be even more capable than you imagine.' Regardless, we're not looking for you to exorcise an angry spirit or battle some demonic presence. <laughs> we already have people to do that. His laugh was rough and superficial. All we need from you is a little help in finding someone, someone who's more important than they realize. 
The Lord has seen fit to provide you with a great gift, Mr. Bowman, and now his servants on earth demand a little in return. Like I said, Herbert began, shrinking back from the wet yellow eyes, I don't need your money. The scarecrow smiled with tight, clamped lips. We expected that, which is why we're prepared to offer something much more valuable than money. Herbert shifted uncomfortably. Really, I, I don't think you have anything that I could want or need. The priest leaned back in his chair, one knee pressed against the edge of the table, lifting himself a little off the ground, disconcertingly immature. How about silence? Do you value that? Suddenly the room seemed big and shadowy. Herbert shivered. "'Herbert,' the priest leaned forward, "'you don't mind if I call you Herbert. "'Have you ever wondered what a priest does "'when someone confesses something illegal, "'or perhaps something on the edges of legality, "'something clearly wrong, something unclean?' "'The scarecrow paused, letting his chair fall forward.' He can't tell the police, of course, can't go to the papers without defiling the sacrament of confession, the sanctity of penitent clergy privilege. But he is allowed to unburden himself, relieve his conscience to his own confessor. Slowly the message passes up the ranks. Finally all is known, and all is remembered. Do you see— Herbert looked away. With no distracting window to focus on, he ran his gaze across the cluttered ranks of science fiction and parapsychology stuffed into the narrow bookshelves. What is it you want me to do? The plane banked over McCarran International, twisting the view of Vegas to a distorted chimera across the aircraft's convex window. The fractured lattices of light, shining like a jeweler's felt-backed diamond cabinet. Herbert forgot the crowding proximity of the next seat-back and the itching, sweat-wet cover of his cramped economy chair, and stared wide-eyed at the contorting fairy lights below. All cities glittered, but Vegas seemed a fairground. The diagonal splash he assumed must be the strip, like a glowing bridge across the city's center. "'Look at it! All that light! The cost! The waste of energy!' It looks like they built this great oasis in the desert just to let it all evaporate. What a waste! The scarecrow snorted, barely looking up from a brochure that hawked oversized swatch watches and novelty cola can clocks. Wait till you see the fountains. But think of it this way, Bowman. If money is power, then Vegas is a nuclear reprocessing plant— and you really don't want something like that to break down. Herbert didn't respond. He couldn't help thinking that from all he'd read of Vegas, the place produced more crap than it absorbed, discarding the bodies of those unwary enough to be trapped by its silent glitter. Out the corner of his eyes he caught the flashing of the seatbelt light, began the struggle to truss his weary bulk. He sensed a rough landing. The Maya was enormous, almost as big, according to their cabbie, as the Luxor and the MGM Grand. 
Its driveway round down to a strip in a curve, girding the hotel's mountainous base like a Van Allsburg illustration. The artificial hill was topped with a vast pyramid, a Mayan temple, as reimagined by Cecil B. DeMille. As the cab wound its way up to the hotel, Herbert leant against his window, peering up at the looming Xanadu. The hotel doors rotated into a cacophony, a garish mishmash of faux Mayan waterworks and ancient Christmas decorations assaulted the eye. The Maya was Vegas in miniature, impossibly glamorous on the outside, but hollow, with a core just as big and ugly as its surface seemed spectacular. Even the slot machines had plastic bamboo handles to spin their hieroglyphic face. The arching roof above Herbert's head depicted a Sistine Chapel-style tableau, a battle between Mayan warriors and their conquistador conquerors. The scarecrow's penguin suit couldn't have seemed more out of place, but he moved easily through the check-in crowd and down to the gambling floor. By contrast, Herbert felt awkward, inversely garish in a simple black storm coat. The place boiled. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The hum of air conditioners struggling against the chill of a desert night, audible over the throng. Herbert struggled to keep up with the priest's lanky, purposeful strides, catching up to the taller man at a blackjack table. The priest was staring over the shoulder of a croupier, hypnotized by the flicker of the cards. Herbert caught his breath, shut his eyes for a moment, blacking out the heat and the two bright lights. 
He resisted tearing off his heavy overcoat, surrendering to the simulacrum reality offered by the casino, and pushed past the heaving crowd around the table. He leant into the scarecrow's ear. Why did you bring me here? The priest snapped out of his reverie and twisted, smiling to face Herbert. Behind those hooded eyes, something was amiss. He reached into the pocket of his blazer, and for one crazy instant, Bowman was certain he'd pulled a gun. Instead, the priest passed him a photo, small but bright and vivid, freshly printed. Herbert scanned the picture, holding it above his head to avoid the press of the crowd that forced him uncomfortably close to the priest. A blonde girl smiled back, chin held up coyly, eyes glimpsing green from behind scrunched-up lids. He glanced back at the scarecrow. "'I'll need more than this.' Unperturbed, the priest held out a gold-colored plastic card, embellished with a black print stencil of the hotel's iconic pyramid. A key. The key card gave only a lift number, a mere sweep of the card triggering the correct floor. Herbert snorted. No matter how drunk or stoned the guests got, they'd always find their way back to bed. Sure enough, the lift opened onto a corridor with a single door, a door which clicked open with a touch of the key card. The room was dark, lights turned down to a minimal illumination. Herbert made no move to raise them, warily exploring the place as much by sound as sight. A richly carpeted foyer expanded into a series of living areas, replete with hundreds of feet of floor space. A dead, flat-screen TV hung on one wall, weakly reflecting the moonlit balcony. Herbert found the bedroom, and, lying down on its king-sized bed, re-examined the photo in the cool, blind, filtered light. The girl was sitting cross-legged on a cheap motel room's orange-sheeted bed. One elbow balanced on a knee, one hand supporting her chin. She was somewhere between seventeen and twenty-five, indeterminate with a shimmering vitality. She seemed happy, shooting a smart alecky grin at the unseen cameraman. Herbert hit the bedside lamp and looked closer. The tangerine daylight indicated summer, but the picture revealed no obvious clues to the identity of the photographer. Her bikini was revealing, but not lewd, hardly salacious. The scene seemed too personal, too genuine to be a customer's record of a purchased conquest. All in all, little to go on. He killed the light, and stretching out on the bed, shut his eyes to consider the room. The scarecrow had sent him here for a reason, one which, despite his jet lag, had not involved rest. The girl had either been here, or was somehow connected to a tenant of the room. Herbert began to relax. Drifting over the body, he hung inert. He'd conditioned himself to tear away from the flesh as quickly as possible, to stretch the cord of life out lightning fast. Sticking around was a nauseating effort of will. He forced himself to turn and regard the waxy cadaver. Bloated and livid in his soul's ethereal glow, his body looked a decade older than its thirty-eight years. His face had a rotund joviality, with its squashed bell nose and its portly cheeks, reddened by the wicked vapors of the whiskey bottle. Seeing oneself like this was a horrific reminder of mortality. 
turgid and silent, solid and undeniably pathetic, Herbert's carcass reminded him of the corpse of a country parson, or perhaps a mildly retarded butcher's assistant, one who hung in the shadows, sharpening cleavers and grinning a little too widely at the local kids sent for a pound of sausages. Herbert wasn't given to morbid self-pity, but the indecency of such full-tone reflection bid him look away. He floated through the room, sailing in the dusky silence, searching. The place was freshly cleaned, absent the detritus of human occupation, missing anything to cling to, any dim ache of object memory. He needed something material, a gust of hot connection, some driving recent passion. He needed contact with a care for this girl, some passionate engagement. In the room all was silent, save the shift and settle of relaxing furniture. Herbert held still, listening to the murmur of the desert breeze, to the unsteady blare and grind of traffic far below. He pictured the girl's image, somehow its effect out of place. She hadn't been happy here. She'd lain on that bed, shaking a little as her sweat evaporated. What had she murmured, lying in the darkness? A soft breath, terror in the silence. Had someone come in? But it had come from behind him. He glided back towards the bedroom, retracing his flesh-rooted umbilical. Moving with slow, prickly inevitability, Herbert edged the door-frame, dead slow, expecting nothing, anticipating anything. The girl lay on the bed, next to his body, golden in the light his soul cast over the bedroom. She was naked and still. He hung for subjective minutes at the foot of the bed, frozen and tingling with analog adrenochrome. She breathed and he relaxed a little, chiding himself at his reaction to her presence. It was merely as the scarecrow has said, he had abilities he hadn't ever realized. A dream faced down a memory, both vapors, while the only real life, his squalid hibernating meat, lay oblivious, a hog next to the girl's illusory beauty. Softly she began to sing, the tune, some half-remembered pop-song, lent infinite melancholy by her impossibly sweet soprano. You stood in the doorway with nothing to say. Herbert's head spun. She couldn't mean him, couldn't know he was watching. He drifted back, triggering an impossible noise. The girl paused mid-sentence, turning to look straight at him. Herbert felt the rising, heady shame of the discovered voyeur. Her eyes, cat-like in the dark, caught his, and for a long moment the air between them seemed to fizz with recognition. She made no move to cover her naked perfection, and his dream face itched, shamefully fascinated. He felt compelled to speak, but a presence tore at him, a body passing through his shadow, drawing its weight of fever-blooded energy. A short, slim-shouldered man now stood over the bed, looking down at the girl. Bowman! Herbert opened his eyes, stiffened against the agony of returning circulation. The scarecrow's gaunt features and empty smile hung over him. Get anything? Herbert trembled a little. Surely it had grown colder in the room. The scarecrow stood, 
seeming for a moment uncomfortable at their proximity. "'It'll do,' he said. "'Get up. We're going for a drive.' The scarecrow lectured him on Vegas history, as Herbert watched the looming very-colored towers skip by, ground-lit by filtered spotlights. The strip was beyond human scale, its caricatured monuments dwarfing the teeming hordes below, its pavement rich with costumed street performers and drifting Hawaiian-shirted tourists, its streets patrolled by heavily armed casino mercenaries. They sped into the Vegas night, past the Luxor, whose laser tip seemed to rend the clouds like a temple to the god of avarice. The ride continued into the edges of the city, where the neon sign blinked and the buildings shrunk to human scale. Herbert nodded along to a potted history of the strip, feigning a vague interest. He was exhausted, had slept only briefly in the large unsettling hotel room. He had grown up unused to secrets, substituting the dream freedom of astral projection for the social skills he'd never seemed to develop. Withdrawn from the world, but freer than them all, Herbert had rarely encountered a situation he couldn't avoid or control. He'd conditioned himself to slow, easy shifts of mood, but this sudden trip, with its static of unvoiced apprehension, was sparking a rising panic. As much to calm himself as placate the priest, he interjected, "'I take it the city's your parish?' The priest laughed. Wherever they were headed, its prospects seemed to ease his evident instability. "'Not at all. I haven't been back here in years.' He paused, growing circumspect, staring out the window, flicking at the seat leather with long-nailed fingers. "'I came from Cork at the end of the sixties. Actually, I stole my passage, knocked a fella down outside a pub in Patrick Street, fighting over a girl. He was a stranger out cold, and no one about, so I went through his coat, pulled out sixty pounds, enough back then for the trip and a little over. He looked back to Herbert, smiled a little. Does that shock you? The priest had that irritating habit of the Irish diaspora, from Frank McCourt on down, of exaggerating his brogue, of slipping into Irishisms when he mentioned the old sod. Herbert didn't reply. I worked as a dealer at the Stardust, then after that the Dunes. We made great money back in the day. I saved up and opened a bar downtown in 82. Customers were pouring over the lip of the desert into the casinos at the time, so we raked it in. I developed expensive habits. Coke, the drink, women. The priest laughed, and again Herbert sensed a crazed edge to his persona, more akin to a Krishna or a Scientologist than any pastor of his acquaintance. Worse than all that, the priest continued, was the gambling. If you're a schmuck, Vegas will take you for everything, and I was a prize-fucking schmuck. As more casinos opened and they started in with all that Disneyland for adults crap, the little clubs were driven into the ground. My place got foreclosed, and I was back dealing blackjack for a living. I managed to get a good casino job through friends, but I screwed it up 
Coming in late and hung over, borrowing money from the job. Got the sack when I came in one time too many with a black eye from another house's bouncer. Definite no-no. By the nineties I was derelict, just another bum on the strip, getting rolled by the cops and drinking anything that burned. Bit of a fucking cliché, to be honest. Herbert wasn't surprised. It explained a lot. He'd known men come back from the streets, from the booze, the filth, and the gear. They were never right after, as if something died in the cold and abject misery, some trust in the world essential to stability. The priest went on, bowing his head a little, as he related his shameful years in the wilderness. I was destitute, filthy. I stole, I ate what scraps I could find, and spent the few bucks I could scrimp on the drink. I shat in the street like a dog, woke up in my own puke and piss more than a few times. There's little charity in this town, Bowman. The fallen are the lowest of the low. Vegas loves a loser, but she hates the lost, and that's the truth. I was a sinner. I arrived in this town through sin, and I fell through sin. But something changed, Herbert interrupted, weary of the modern tirade, exhausted and fearing more pious mortification. Indeed, I met a great man, a fellow Irishman, who found me out and lifted me from my dejection an inspiration, and an infinite blessing on a poor sinner like myself. You'll understand presently. It seems we've almost arrived. It's time for you to meet Bishop Stanley. The bishop's residence took a form Herbert could never have predicted. They had to wait for it to land, banking in a wide arc over a private runway somewhere on the edge of the desert the tarmac turning blue in the Vegas dawn. His plane was a 747, soot black with white-tipped wings. You have got to be kidding. The scarecrow shook his head. Herbert, me boy, his grace's talents are in great demand. In recent times his parish has had to become a roving one. A silent hybrid car, like an enclosed golf cart with passenger seats, took them to the plain, where a portal opened to reveal varnished wooden paneling and a thick purple carpet. Herbert stopped for a moment at the bottom of the steps to watch the sun climb over a sea of canyons and purple-shadowed sand dunes, room enough for anyone to disappear. They were led to a cabin a lean, black-gloved servant described as the stateroom. Stretching almost across the width of the plain, its ceiling eight feet high in places, with compact data terminals sunk into the black lacquer of the conference table, the decor put Hollywood depictions of Air Force One to shame. The bishop, too, defied expectations. A short, bespectacled man, with prematurely graying hair, in a plain black suit and dog collar. For some reason, Herbert had expected full ceremonial robes. He greeted the scarecrow with warm words and a near bear hug dismissing him to sit at the foot of the table, then motioning Herbert to a low swivel chair. Long seconds passed in silence, Herbert's exhaustion betraying his discomfort. "'Well, Bowman,' 
My first impression is that you're even less impressive in person. Herbert leaned back, fought the desire to turn aggressive. The bishop might not have been the inspiring charismatic figure promised, but no doubt brutal flunkies hovered, flexing just out of sight. Your eminence, your holiness, or however you like to be referred to, I have been brought here distinctly against my will. I'm tired and dirty, and I'd appreciate a drink, a few hours sleep, and an explanation. In that order. The bishop didn't darken, didn't balk, hardly reacted at all. Somehow, without a word, he summoned a willowy lackey, already bearing Herbert's drink of choice. No doubt identified from some thick and grubby, well-thumbed file. Herbert gulped greedily at the green chartreuse, dignity lost to lack of sleep. I'm afraid I won't be able to indulge your need to relax. Time is, needless to say, of the essence. The bishop keyed a few commands into a terminal, flicking a projector to life expensively quickly, painting a face, geometrically corrected, on the curved fuselage of the plane. The girl was younger than in the scarecrow's snapshot, a Catholic schoolgirl, cropped and expanded from a class photo. Her name is Manya. She's twenty now, closer to her age in the print we've given you. I can't give you many other details, except that we have reason to believe she's still in the city, and that we need to find her quickly. Clearly our motives are important enough to resort to the abilities of someone as unseemly as yourself. As he spoke, the bishop scraped his thumbnail under a close-bitten fingernail, nervous, at incongruent detail. Herbert scanned the picture, the girl's bright grin anonymous in the tanned and smiling ranks of uniformed schoolgirls. She wasn't a nobody, but she didn't seem like anybody special. He had to ask, "'Is Manya your daughter?' For a moment he thought the bishop would unleash a torrent of abuse. Stanley seemed to lack the restrained, subtle coercion Herbert had come to associate with genuinely powerful men. "'Who she is is not your concern, Bowman. You need to tell us where she is. Now!' Herbert bid them stop in a lay-by over a storm drain. The drain was dust-dry now, softly exhaling over the cracked floor of the desert. With no obvious route down the twenty feet to the grated mouth of the tunnel, they had to repel, Herbert slinking his pallid bulk in heaving jerks, fearing the descender might break, more afraid of the humiliation than the fall. The scarecrow shook the wrought-iron lattice, moving it hardly at all. Blocking the drain were six inches of iron grill and a foot-wide grained steel padlock. Herbert loosed his tongue, fingering his dirty collar. "'Seems impassable. It does give that impression,' the priest laughed. "'But the breath of the Lord blows open any mere gate of man.' He reached into a pocket, drawing out a glossy package wrapped in oily grease-proof paper. It opened it to reveal a small green lump of something that looked like play-doh and a tight coil of bronze filament. Herbert coughed. "'Abracafacadabra!' 
From twenty feet away, flat across the curving concrete storm drain, they tripped the current and the gate blew out. An echoing, single-barreled explosion funneled by the mouth of the drain. Shrapnel, forced back by air, hard-packed into the tunnel, spat out in a great, vomitous goo across the desert, cooling in seconds from white-hot to the orange of a coal fire. The iron-filing smell and the jagged shards reminded Herbert of something horrible and half-forgotten. Like every black-toothed mouth, every crevice leading to every forbidding primordial cave, the entrance was hideously uninviting. It hung open to the morning, raw and splintered with shining, cooling fragments, leaking the spoilt cheese fumes of the underground. Naturally, the scarecrow set off, scarcely looking back. Herbert hesitated, scowling at the vertical climb to the road and the car, and followed. They kept straight on into the tunnel for a couple of hundred feet, until it opened into a large cavern, lit with panels of stark bright light from a grating above, a half-dozen passages spread out in a star of indecision. What now? The scarecrow turned, found a lump of concrete scrubbed by flood water to a soft-tipped mound, and sat, drawing out a stick of gum. He made a ceremony of the gradual unwrapping. That is up to you, kiddo. Herbert leant back against the flaking wall. Looks like we wait. He melted into the rock, upright, exhaustion and adrenaline easing the leave-taking, the stinging tear of self from skin. He sank through the floor of the chamber, mustered slow and even flow, sank through concrete and sandstone, drifting along tubes of head-height tunnels, sliding through narrow pipes mere hands-breadths wide, thinning to a flute of self, liquefying, vaporizing, seeping ever downward. In the rocky depths behind him, something growing, something glowing, to a hot, bright heart of Kali, darkening, a voiceless call, oddly familiar, drawing nearer, growing closer. Herbert opened his eyes, turning toward a tunnel. This way. The scarecrow stopped him, slipped him something hard and cold, metallic. You'll be needing this. Herbert met the gray, unmoving eyes, shivered, and moved on into the tunnel. They climbed down heady lengths of rusty ladder, descending toward ledges above impossible chasms, lent infinite depth through Herbert's fear and the trickling, creeping darkness. The only light was the weak flickering of the headband torches. The tunnels grew wetter and colder the deeper they descended, a damp web of seedy, broken promises, whispering inward towards the center of the city. In the dark, their rhythmic steps and Herbert's heavy wheezing breaths and thick sniffling Dublin cough reverberated. Rattling, distant, unwieldy, and gigantic machines operated, colossi shifting a little to the echo of their passage. They reached a base level, a foot deep in murky water, where concrete pillars supported the labyrinth above, and set off in some arbitrary-seeming direction, heads bent and scuttling beneath the heavy vaulted ceiling. Herbert led, his lamp throwing a pale wedge of half-light through the earth-hewn dark. They trudged through cold sewer water, a viscous suspension of softened, slow, decaying refuse. 
It clung to them, drawn up through trousers and the edge of their careless sleeves, filthy and stinking, slowing and chilling their dread-sod endless passage. At last they reached a ramp of sorts, a slope that lifted from the level of the water, rising up at a slight angle beyond the reach of their lamps. The hiss of falling water a little distance away obscured their footsteps, and Herbert motioned the priest's silence, though the taller man had said nothing since the start of their descent. They reached a wall, hung almost vertical from the ceiling, ending suspended a foot and a half above the floor. The pair edged under, crawling in their wet clothes through the inches of grimy dust, the cramped, asphyxiating overhang continuing for ten feet or so, then opening out into a corridor. Herbert hesitated, again motioned for silence, had crept along the wall for several feet, summoned by a draft of warm and dusty air. He reached an opening in the floor, pumping his body, feet first through the hole. Sliding out, he hung from pudgy elbows, then roughly scraped his hands over the concrete lip and dropped a foot or so, rolling on impact. The sound, obscured by the gush of running water, louder now, smashing down on concrete somewhere else. He edged along another, tighter corridor, the scarecrow tipping into space above him, but head first, pushing off the wall and twisting with preternatural grace to drop in apparent silence to his feet. Herbert flicked off his lamp, and the priest took point, edging towards the moving, daylit shadows, leering into the corridor from around a corner before them. The scarecrow paused, blinked rapidly to accustom to the light, pulled something dull and heavy from his jacket, and skirted the corner, tight-wound stillness springing to a blur of motion. Herbert hung back, froze when two flat, hard rounds punched the quiet. From around the corner a girl called out for a moment, then nothing. He gripped one leg to still the shaking and inched into the room the base of a sheer concrete shaft. The daylight was blinding, noon sun channeling straight down into the chamber, hundreds of feet below. The first body lay spread-eagled on the floor, head propped against a shoddy camp-bed, face frozen, more puzzled than afraid. The boy was maybe eighteen, twenty, and the priest had shot him twice, once in the chest, once in the head. The scarecrow had his back to Herbert, was bent over the second body, knotting her hands behind her back with the loops of thin green plastic cord, his coat abandoned to the floor, his black shirt rippled like the skin of Mr. Hyde. He held the girl suspended, face forward by her wrists, her back cruelly twisted, while he hog-tied hands to feet. She was maybe six months along, belly resting in the dirt, half-conscious, eyes flickering beneath the purple bruise already building on one temple. Christ! Herbert backed against a wall, upsetting piles of cheap tinned foods. The scarecrow turned his head, eyes cold and pupils vanishing small, aimed a snub-nosed gun at Herbert's face. Stay where you are, Bowman. I'll be needing your doughy arse in a second. He returned his attention to the girl, finished trussing her like a pig, and hung her up to face them, suspended from an overhanging pipe by the cord joining her hands and feet. 
She moaned a little, started to come too, till he tugged her head up by the hair and cuffed her again, knocking her senseless. The scarecrow pulled a length of yellowed kerchief from a shirt pocket, stuffed one end of it into her mouth, working the whole bundle in, a bulging, choking lump. Herbert's hands clenched and unclenched, but he stood rooted to the spot. The scene was too ambiguous, the dirty steel of the scarecrow's gun too hard and real. The scarecrow stood before the girl, ignoring Bowman, his head cocked to one side, his long fingers spread open, a Disney parody of a wicked villain. The scarecrow rested both hands on the girl's swollen stomach, gave a gentle push, so she swung back and forth a little, a softly moaning human pendulum, reached up to her neck, tearing open the fabric of her summer dress, rending it right down the middle, so it hung in tattered drapes over her shoulders. Her distended belly lay open to the room, a half-finished Damien Hurst sculpture, awaiting its dissection. The scarecrow worked with a weird precision, each action a part of some medically precise, synchronized routine. He ran his hands over the girl's belly, and this time Herbert started forward, his tipping point arrived. The scarecrow spun around, catching Herbert's fist in one wide, grubby hand, twisting his wrist inwards and pushing him away. Herbert crashed ignominiously to the floor and skulked back into the shadows. The priest turned back the girl, pulled her head up by a clump of hair, and planted a hard kiss on her dry, cracked lips, licking between them to scrape his thick tongue over her teeth. He wrapped his arms around her, breathing heavily, tearing at the black clasp on her bra, freeing her swollen breasts. Then, slunk like a coarse lover, like Brando in Last Tango, like a Bastille jailer quickened by the defilation of a queen, to slip her panties down, gloating at her violation. No torn, conflicted decency displayed. Now Herbert closes his eyes in seamy cowardice, sickened at his own voyeurism. Now he opens them, raises his hands to fend the heavy rhythmic punches of the priest, who picks him up seemingly weightless, suddenly childlike, slams him back against the concrete wall, his head cracking first, then his back, a whiplash snap. The priest is stronger than his gaunt frame, his bony arms could betray. He hauls Herbert up, one hand under his sweaty chin, folds of reddened fat pulling under his fingers, wet like gutted fish. Bowman, you little nothing, you filthy little nothing. The priest is panting, more from excitement than exertion, his words coming in gasps. Herbert's almost drowning from the weight of his suspended body and the crush of the scarecrow's hand, the corners of his vision blackening. The scarecrow lifts him higher, heaves him sideways, tossing him down onto the concrete floor. He feels his nose splinter on impact, not just cartilage, but bone, forehead smashing after it. The shock forestalling pain, but the fear of injury, the terror of things broken loose inside. He lies curled, half-fetal, waiting for the kicks which somehow don't arrive, twists open to watch the scarecrow, who's calming down, slicking his hair back into place, pulling on black leather gloves and staring back, dispassionate now. Don't take it personally, Bowman. I just enjoy my work. 
He snorts, backhandedly wiping away a bulb of snot. Reach into your pocket. Herbert complies, sliding his good hand slowly back, feeling each pocket in turn. He finds something, the fat metal lump the priest handed him years ago in the darkened corridor. Holds it up. The scarecrow shakes his head. No, open it. Herbert does, first shuffling to a half-seated posture, rubbing some life back into his strangulated neck, then pulling the handle open. The lump's a flick blade, and clicks smoothly into place. He meets the scarecrow's eyes, offers it again. Once more the scarecrow shakes his head. No, it's for you. He nods across the room to where the girl still hangs, grotesquely naked, trussed up like the last member of a species hunted to extinction. And her. The priest pauses, set back on his haunches, facing Herbert, fingering his gun, pose perfectly reflecting his unsettling immaturity. Do you remember your theology, Bowman, your genesis and revelations? Even in paradise the Lord has an angel, Ragel, a dark-winged punisher, formed to shape his vengeance. I imagine they think of me like that, a sword of the church, made the way I am for some purpose, best put to good use, lest the devil find a bad one for my idle talons. The scarecrow stared down at his hands. The bishop has always appreciated my work. Who am I to judge? His grace is a great man, you know, one who does enormous good. But like all great men, he has his weaknesses, his fallibilities. Kennedy, Gandhi, Bonaparte, all great leaders, all only human, each a fount of endless love and endless appetites. Love spilled out of the bowmen, sometimes foolishly, sometimes in ways they couldn't restrain. In the bishop's case, this girl proved too sweet to resist, as did her mother. Herbert met the girl's eyes open now, her face a rigid, bruising mask of condemnation. Don't look so disgusted, bowmen. In the Middle Ages, or back home in the fifties, Hell, right now, in parts of Africa, it wouldn't raise an eyebrow. My God, how do you think they breed horses? Herbert sobbed, a low, keening growl. He looked away from the girl, around the cramped confines of her self-imposed prison, and back to the priest. So assured, so empty of remorse. Our modern hypocrisy takes an absolutist view of such things, makes blind moronic tabloid judgments. The priest stood, began to pace, wrapping the butt of the gun against the palm of one hand. His grace is rising, Bowman. We're living in a new century with a new pope, and Stanley has his ear. Imagine the millions he might save— save from AIDS in Africa, from poverty or brutal circumcision. The church is fading in the West. We're so out of touch we don't smell our own death coming. Catholicism's trapped in its vision of hellfire and damnation. Think what it would do if it had the power 
to gays, to atheists, and to raped wee girls who get abortions. Look how it blocks medical research and suggests monstrous alternatives, like growing babies engineered to disillusion. He stopped, bent down to Herbert, animated, imploring. But all that could be fixed, Bowman. The message could be modernized. But let me tell you, I know these people. I've done their dirty work for years. They're not for changing. The bishop is the only chance we've got. One slut can't be allowed to ruin the hope of millions. He was psyching himself up, transparently justifying the horror to come. She's just one little bitch, Herbert, just another runaway. And it's you who gets to clear her out, to gut the filth. Don't pretend to adopt some moral high ground. It won't be the first child you've torn open. Herbert's sniveling now, shaking his head. He turns and starts to crawl away, fingernails scraping the sandy floor of the storm drain. Till the priest's foot comes down hard on his back, snaps his sticky, broken nose into the floor, and from somewhere behind the red explosion in his head, he feels the barrel of the gun softly rubbing down the line of his spine. The scarecrow's voice, a coarse whisper in his ear. I know you like to kid yourself, Bowman. You probably think they liked it. You probably think your fat yellow fingers turned them on. But you're a monster, Bowman, just like me. What's one more sin when you're damned already? Herbert felt the gun leave his neck, sensed the priest stand up behind him as he dragged his mangled face out of the dirt. I'd do it myself, and screw any lingering fondness I may have for the girl. But his grace doesn't want to have to look into the face of the man who finished her. Wants to keep his hands clean, too, I guess. No direct instruction, but I knew exactly what he wanted. The scarecrow pulls Herbert up by the folds of his neck, drops him to his feet, still clutching the knife in his one good hand, pushes him toward the girl, looms behind them, an inescapable sentence. Do it now, Bowman. Fuck her up. Herbert stands before the girl, afraid to even look over his shoulder at the priest. He can feel the aim of the gun square in his back. The girl's awake, eyes alive within a waxy face. Herbert isn't sure if she's in shock, brutalized to imbecility, or waiting for a chance to escape. He raises a hand to her cheek, looks right at her, ashamed, naked himself. Her chest is flushed, breasts twisted awkwardly askew. The hung weight of her belly looks like agony on her thin wrists. Herbert looks into her face, her features blending into the girl in his dreams, into every girl, every hope of salvation. He wonders where the darkness came from. All that he can see now is the accusation of a child. There's no more time. The scarecrow clears his throat, and Herbert strikes. His eyes close, and he sees the room in wicked color, wider than the spectrum of true vision each pebble showing every facet at every angle of the light, each fiber of each garment a bundle of grainy filaments, 
each moment a million framed in silence. The priest stands edge on to the couple, hands out, holding his gun, six foot three inches in close-up. From the dry tubes of his comb-over to the pores rotting in his hollowed cheeks, Herbert takes it all in, aches with the resolution, freezes the moment in high fidelity. The priest's words come back to him, jovial cod accent and all, hanging in the air like an incantation. We've all been given our talents. Yours may be even more capable than you imagine. The bishop chose him. He must have known. The priest is like a photograph, a Jan van Eyck portrait in nauseating detail, the prototype of hot, burning anger, burning man, the first flames licking at its center, cleansing fire tearing through its effigy. The moment melts, the priest's face turning puzzled, then alarmed, his screaming muted by its brevity, the flames rising around him, through him, searing white heat, pressing Herbert face forward against the girl. Quick as they started, the fires clear, a thick column of rancid smoke climbing up into the dulling afternoon. Little left but the gun, which clatters to the floor to cool amidst a pile of charred and stinking relics of spontaneous combustion. The girl watches over Herbert's shoulder, eerily impassive as he holds her, shaking with relief and exhaustion. After a minute he takes his arms, his weight, from round her shoulders, looks up into her dirty battered face, regards the bright, unmoving eyes. For the moment, absolutely still. With Andrew Booth, Gareth Stack wrote the 2008 issue of the infamous satire magazine Piranha. That year's issue created such a storm of controversy in the Irish press, it was officially withdrawn from publication. Gareth launched the Invisible Tour Guide in 2009. This ongoing podcast series provides fictional tours of historic Dublin, in the company of a lunatic professor, one Byron Frump, and his ever-growing family of Baroque relatives. Also in 2009, Gareth began performing stand-up comedy around Dublin and throughout all of Ireland. So far, he's performed in many, many clubs, including Aidan Bishop's International Comedy Club, Andrew Stanley's Mishmash, the Capital Comedy Club, The Underground, The Neptune, Laugh Out Loud, and Pat Short's Pub. In 2010, Gareth launched Marshmallow Ladyboy Jesus, an alternative literary and experimental comedy showcase held in the Collective Arts Center, Exchange Dublin. Recently, Gareth appeared as a guest on Damon Blake's live panel show, Eat Cake, and curated the storytelling room at the first-ever Milk and Cookie Stories After Dark event in the Clarendon basement. He also lent his voice to the comedic radio soap opera On the Line and the children's radio series The Erblin Chronicles. Both were on Dublin City FM. 
In a rather contradictory move, he also penned a variety of articles for the Irish adult magazine Blue Ireland. Back in show number 76, we heard Gareth's Creep Doll, read by Gareth, a very creepy tale. It's good to hear another voice from you, Gareth, and I know we'll be looking for more. Speaking of Gareth's voice, tonight, Gareth was voiced by Mr. Bob Neufeld. Bob's first recordings for Tales to Terrify were two Karnacki stories, one by William Meikle, the other by William Hope Hodgson. His voice has also been heard on our sister podcast, Crime City Central. And beginning next week... Tales to Terrify will feature Bob Neufeld reading all 41,300 words of one of H.P. Lovecraft's signature tales. Uh, well, you'll be here, won't you? In the meantime, you can find his recordings of complete works by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Joseph Conrad, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, and many others on the celebrated LibriVox.org. And when he isn't recording, Bob works in the wide, wonderful world of human resources. A list of Bob's LibriVox recordings can be found at a site I'll post on the Tales to Terrify homepage. And that will be that for this week. As mentioned, next week we'll begin a three-part trek with our old chum, H.P. Lovecraft. We haven't done many multi-part shows, but I do like letting an author have some time to develop character and setting, and I hope you do, too. Let us know. Stop by the Tales to Terrify homepage, or drop in and like us on Facebook and share your thoughts with us there. Also, stop by the homepage and, well, you know, make a contribution or make a commitment to Tales to Terrify and the whole District of Wonders by subscribing to this show or any of the others. We will continue to be free, but we do need funds to keep going so well. <laughs> Enough said. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's tale. I hope your walk home won't be too horrible. Again, it's dark, it's warm... It's muggy, so the walk will be uncomfortable, but when you get home, you can crank up the air, dehumidify, and finally come to rest. Try to stay in your body, though, through the night. Out-of-body experiences are just fine, but, well, it's a big, dark eternity out there, and getting lost, well... That would certainly disturb your pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.